Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters coming to you from our home on the big island of Hawaii. I am Tim Merriman, your host. I won't always know my guests as well as I did Sam Ham last week and today's guest, but it was easy to start with old friends and prominent individuals in the interpretive profession. Paul Caputo is a friend of many years, a former employee, and best of all, the newly appointed executive director of National Association for Interpretation, a job I love for 17 years. You will learn more about his amazing journey to this role as we talk. So here we go. Paul, it's great to see you. We've been friends a long time. How many years? 2002. Well, so I interviewed with NAI. Uh, I I interviewed with the National Association for Interpretation in November of 2001. And then I started there in February of 2002. Wow. Uh, you were the executive director at the time. And that... Uh, remained the case for another decade plus. So, you know, somewhere in there, we became friends along the way. And uh, so, I, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 years, I would say. Well, it's been great to occasionally have our paths crossed, despite the fact that I'm on an island out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The big Yeah, island. you thought you got away. I know you grew up back east. Mm-hmm. Exactly where did you grow up? I grew up in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Uh, just outside of Philadelphia, about 15 miles to the west of Philadelphia. Uh, on Philadelphia's main line, uh, my father taught at Villanova University. So we're, you know, for college basketball fans, you'll know where that is. And I have met your father. And he's a great guy. And so I I know you grew up in a great, and your mother, you, you have a great mm-hmm. family. What really brought you out to Colorado? Because you were in Colorado when you interviewed with us, weren't you? I was, yeah. My my then brand new wife and now not wife anymore, uh, Sheila, her family lives uh, out in Colorado. And after we got married, we tried to move to Montreal and that didn't work. It was right after 9-11 and uh, her family was out here and I spent my whole life on the East Coast. And I thought, let me try, uh, let me, let me try something different. And so we came out to Colorado with the idea that it would just be for a couple of years. And uh, we were living in Denver and, you know, I was busy while she was teaching uh, at in Denver public schools. I was busy watching Comedy Central and eating grilled cheese during the day. And I uh, happened to find this job with the National Association for Interpretation. And, and Well, uh, I remember well that you were having a wonderful commute every day. <laughs> the commute from south of Denver to Fort Collins was a, a lovely roughly hour and a half each way for about seven months of my life. Yeah, about a 75 mile an hour headache every morning. Yes, exactly. The good news is you could sleep during it because there's really no turns on I-25 between Denver and Fort Collins. So you could close your eyes for about 10, 20 miles and still be okay. I've done that and it's not safe at all. And I did get a bad speeding ticket one day for doing that because Uh, I went went right past uh, the sign that said, slow down. <laughs> I got a I got a really nice speeding ticket once coming in on a Sunday uh, because I was I was making up some time I, I had I guess I had some vacation planned before I started there and we worked it out such that I could I could uh, take I, I could work on a Sunday and so uh, most of that drive is a 75 mile an hour speed limit but in the city proper which I had to drive through to you know to get to the that part it was 55. And so I was doing 75 and a 55 on a Sunday morning, and I got a nice fat ticket for that. That's what I did. But you should never do what I did. And that is, I didn't put my emergency brake on, and I left it neutral, and I rolled backwards into the police car. (laughs) So I got an extra ticket for hitting the police car. That's a whole long story. I won't go there. I guess so. Congratulations. You were just promoted. Uh, to executive director at National Association for Interpretation. And as you mentioned, I was in that role for 17 years and loved it. Uh, it was uh, one of the greatest jobs in the world. How do you feel about it? I've been with NAI for for 20 years. And when I first started, I never envisioned this, right? Like the idea that, uh, A, that I would be with the organization that long and B, that I would ultimately someday step into the the role of, ex- uh, of executive director was well beyond the the scope of my dreams, right? Like that was, uh, I'd never even imagined it. And as I, I, I've always told people, you know, I've been with the organization a long time, but it never felt, 
stagnant because every time I thought, okay, you know, it's time to move on. It's time to do something slightly different. Something would change about the organization. You know, we, we moved into a new building, uh, courtesy of the, the work that you all did, you know, to, to make that happen during your tenure there. Uh, we started the international conference. And so I got to start doing some really interesting uh, travel. And, you know, then, you know, I, I stepped into the deputy director role after a certain amount of time. And so, so, you know, over the course of my 20 years there, every two or three years, the organization or my role in it has changed and sort of kept things interesting and, and fresh. And so after 20 years to, you know, have the, the honor and the privilege to, to take on the role of executive director is daunting and thrilling, right? And it's, such an amazing organization and interpreters do such incredible, important work that, you know, having the opportunity to serve the people in this profession in this capacity is, ha, has been such a, an honor and a thrill for me. So to the short answer to your question is that you, you know, how great the organization is, you know, how great the field is, and you got to serve in the role of uh, executive director for 17 years. And so uh, I don't have to tell you it's a it's such an honor and and so meaningful to me to get to serve this incredible field and so so I love it I'm thrilled with it and uh, you know it's 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 it is daunting and and but also uh, exciting at the same time. And I'm a biologist with a PhD in communications, turned uh, nonprofit executive. Uh, you have a different background academically. What was that? My background, well, I have a, my major in undergraduate is uh, French. I was a French major with a journalism minor. And uh, of course, what everyone does with that degree is they go back to school for graphic design. So I have a, so, an MFA right. in, in visual communications from, uh, from Virginia Commonwealth University. And, and yeah, so, you know, you get into the business of nonprofit professional trade association management, and, you know, there's a certain amount of learning on the job that happens and, and, you know, that I've, I've gotten to learn from, you know, working, uh, for, for you, I wasn't as intentional about it while you were there. Cause I, at that point in my career, I wasn't really aware that that was a, a pursuit, uh, after you left in, in 2013, uh, and I served in the interim role for a, a short while before Margot Carlock came on. Um, you know, it was during Margot's tenure that I really got a sense for, uh, you know, this is something that I could see either I need to go find something else to do because I've been with NAI so long, or I, you know, need to develop an interest in, in this position. And that's what happened. I, you know, I became a, a member of the Colorado Society of Association Executives, and I uh, ended up on some of their committees and ultimately their board and really, you know, delved deep into learning about association management, you know, during the last, you know, maybe five, six, seven years uh, with my time in NAI. And so that's been, um, you know, that's, that really, you know, is the, the kid with the French degree and the MFA in visual communications ending up in, in association management is, uh, it's like many interpreters. It's a, it's a different path. <laughs> well, you know, one of the more common things we told interpreters is it's fun to be in the role where you're out there with people, mm -hmm. uh, helping them understand nature, history, uh, connect with a culture, but ultimately you watch programs get downsized and destroyed. And it's great to move up and be the administrator who actually has some control of, of mm -hmm. where the money is spent, how mm -hmm. the investment is made. So I, I can tell you that Lisa Brochu is my wife and she was associate director. And we both applauded silently here in our home in a way when we heard that you had been uh, moved up to executive director, because we think it was the right move for the organization. And I think the right move for you. Thank you for that. And obviously, you know, I, I worked for Lisa directly. Uh, Lisa was my immediate supervisor for, for many years during her term as associate director. And it was, uh, you know, that was, that was a great experience for me. And I learned so much from, from both of you and uh, you know, and I'm glad that we have, uh, maintained a friendship and and uh, been able to uh you know stay in touch in the decade it's hard to believe the decades since you left the organization yeah it's, it seems like yesterday it's been quite a while i i would tell you that i remember you collaborating with somebody in arkansas and with lisa on a book mm. why did you do that 
<laughs> uh, so the book was Interpretation by Design. And so this somebody in Arkansas is uh, our mutual friend, Shay Lewis, who is now the director of Arkansas State Parks. I mean, he's a big fancy pants there now. Uh, and then obviously Lisa, an expert in non-personal interpretation. The three of us collaborated on on this book that was essentially about how interpreters can apply what they already know about the field of interpretation, the tenets of interpretation, apply that same decision-making process to graphic design. Because the, the problem with graphic design is that computer defaults make it really easy to make a lot of bad decisions. And we wanted to create a, a publication that helped guide people in making meaningful decisions about their design. They're already making meaningful decisions about their interpretive programs and what they're going to include and why and putting together an outline and putting together a structure. That same structure can be applied to graphic design to make meaningful decisions about how you create publications and websites and exhibits and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, we had Lisa and, and her extensive experience in, 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 in the field of interpretation from a commercial standpoint. And, and as a consultant, we had Shay as a, you know, a highly trained interpreter himself. And then my background in graphic design, the three of us, you know, came out that came at that from, from different perspectives. And I think put together, uh, a book that I was just told today, by the way, is selling well again. All of a sudden, like all, I, I'm not quite sure what's going on with it, but uh, apparently, uh, interpretation by design is flying off the shelves at NAI. That's very cool. You know, I thought at the time it was a needed book in the field. Uh, I didn't realize I was no longer going to be allowed to use papyrus or Comic Sans. But, yeah, they're uh, banned. <laughs> <laughs> right to jail. <laughs> We had all of our internal jokes about that sort of thing because mm -hmm. there are best mm -hmm. practices in the field and we ought to be using them. Sure. I do remember Lisa coming to me once and saying, some people think that you use orange too much in your designs for NAI. And I said, Lisa, are you some people? And she said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, a lot of what goes into it is subjective, but guess what? You, you folks identified good guidelines. And that was the intent that got, when we got us into publishing books mm -hmm. at NAI, uh, the board was kind in approving a book that Lisa and I wrote at home in our spare time called Personal Interpretation. And we were just trying to write something that would be a good aid to people uh, either taking the Certified Interpretive Guide course or just starting out in the field and needing some sort of a quick read that would help them understand what they'd gotten into. And then uh, I remember as a young park naturalist interpreter in Illinois, my early eight years of my career, I had to totally redo a, a visitor center. I had no training in art, no training in graphic design, making decisions on the fly on a daily basis. And I would love to go back and redo it and do it right. But mm -hmm. in the interim, it, the visitor center burnt to the ground so my bad decisions are gone forever <laughs> that's one it's one way to do it i guess <laughs> well that was wasn't what i wanted but that's what happened um, so what do you like best about working with nai members in the, in the first address to nai members uh, as executive director it was i was 13 days into my tenure as uh, as executive director full, full time i'd been serving in the interim role for for a while I explained my philosophy on why this position is so important to me and why it's personal to me that interpreters, you know, if you look at the crises the world is facing right now, there's a climate crisis, right? The environment is in crisis and interpreters are out here building bridges, trying to create connections to nature, to try to create stewards of, of nature. And so, you know, here, here are I, the, my my premise is that interpreters are superheroes, right? And they're trying to to solve all the crises that are facing us as a people and as a planet right now. So there's the nature crisis. There is this crisis of divisiveness, right? That uh, you know this this lack of understanding between people, and you know, in my lifetime, I mean, it feels like we're more divided now than than we've ever been, and the the ability of people to communicate with one another just seems gone. And, you know, here's interpreters out there, the cultural interpreters, building bridges between communities, trying to facilitate understanding between people. And, you know, they're, they're out there. I mean, this is meaningful to me. You know, I have a, uh, a transgender daughter who uh, 
is, you know, a member of a community who can, can feel uh, underrepresented in many ways. And so the interpreters who are out here doing this work of building bridges, building understanding between communities are helping to solve this crisis of a lack of, of understanding of this divisiveness between communities. And then you look at the historical interpreters, right? I mean, we're in a place right now where interpreters, or, or I'm sorry, we're in a place right now where we need to under, understand our history or, you know, I mean, more doomed than ever to repeat it. I mean, we are at such a a turning point historically as a as a people, you know, certainly in the United States, but but worldwide, and and historical interpreters are out here trying to to create an understanding of of history. For me, you know, interpreters as superheroes trying to solve the climate crisis, trying to build bridges between communities, trying to create an understanding of our history. You know, for me to get to serve that profession uh, through NAI is is an honor and a, and a responsibility that that I take very seriously and so it's it's not just a job it's an avocation right like it is something that I feel very strongly that that interpretation can save the world and you know our our job at NAI is to help give interpreters the resources they need in order to you know get that important work done yeah you make a great point you know I don't think I realized I I studied to be a biology teacher a high school teacher mm -hmm. and I student taught mm -hmm. And I enjoyed the classroom. And then when I landed my first job as the nature guy at a, a summer camp, I had a great time taking kids out and exploring nature. When I went to the state park, I suddenly realized I was in the persuasion business. Mm -hmm. and, and the form of that persuasion is not to tell people what to believe, or to uh, preach to them, but to try to help their them understand the world better in hopes that that understanding leads to better behavior, that you're less likely to throw something on the ground if you cherish nature as it is, unspoiled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was the reason when I was a park naturalist, I started going to school at night to earn a PhD in communications because I was thinking, I know the scientific names of lots of plants and animals. I really need to know more about people and what lights yeah. their fire. And yeah. that's where I went. It, that's very well said. You know, it's it's it really is about uh, you know you can you can interpret anything, and the the field is about a, a communication process, and and so that's why we changed our logo from a house, a tree, and a frog to, you know, something that was more abstracted and was more about the communication process. I remember that well. <laughs> <laughs> it was just just a, six, a short six-year stint of my life. There you go. You know, one of the things I thought about the last few years is despite the fact that I was, for 17 years I was in that role, we had some crises of various kinds. We had people get mm -hmm. sick at a national conference and put them mm -hmm. in the hospital. That was tough to deal with. Nothing that like story that. is still shared. Oh, is it? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, it's it's part of the lore. Well, that was that was an interesting experience, but nothing like the pandemic. And I thought about you yeah. because uh, you weren't quite in this role yet, but I was really aware that you were sitting there in the national office going, what do we do now? And I don't know what I would have done right then, except some of the things I saw you do. Well, we were we were lucky as a as an organization and as a staff to have been poised. Well, and as a field, I you know it's not exclusive to NAI. We we have a, a, a you know you you are familiar with our interpretive media awards, which is an awards program that recognizes the work that's done in non personal interpretation. We created a new category for that awards program called the Pandemic Pivot. Oh, wow. which was basically recognizing any interpretive products that took their in-person on-site interpretation and made it available in a, you know, public in, in a way that was safe for public health during the height of the pandemic. And we were as an organization and as a as a field, we didn't know we were preparing for it, but the technology that we were ramping up with you know our webinar program with uh you know some of our virtual conference offerings that we made at the nai national conference 
these were these were things that we had been starting to do in a kind of rudimentary way right before the pandemic hit. And uh, one of the things that NAI does is they uh, we we partner with California State Parks on a program called InterpTech, which is a small conference held at Asilomar uh, Conference Grounds, uh, just uh, just south of Monterey in Pacific Grove, where we focus on the use of technology and interpretation. Well, long before the pandemic, one of the sponsors of this conference was a a little. A video conferencing program that no one had ever heard of called Zoom. Organizationally and as a field, this the pandemic happened at just the right time that really forced us to use the things that we had just started learning. And I mean, we did what what any other organization could do, which was to take as much of what we were doing in person online. We had a lot of events get canceled. Uh, our regional workshops, you know, they just you know sort of had no other option but to but to cancel. You know, these in-person workshops that were all happening in the spring of 2020. But by the time the 2020 national conference came around, which was supposed to be in St. Augustine, Florida, we were able to do an entire online conference uh, thanks to our events manager Song Stott, who really you know she really pulled this this off in an ama- in an amazing way. And I and I think that was it. It was it was it was the pivot. It was it was being able to look at okay, what are we doing in person? How do we take it virtual? How do we keep offering the benefits to our members that they need? We we started offering a lot of free things to our members. You know, we have this weekly uh, meetup group called Interp Talk, which is you know just a free networking thing. You can just hop on Zoom and chat with other interpreters. Um, we had a program for people who had been furloughed uh, to extend their memberships free of charge. Um, you know, th- this this sort of thing. Uh, we were offering grants and stipends to people who had been furloughed. NAI, thank you. We didn't have to furlough or lay off anybody on our staff. We were able to, to maintain our, our full staff throughout the, you know, throughout the pandemic. That was, you know, during... Uh, you know, the height of the pandemic was during Margot Carlock's towards the end of Margot Carlock's tenure there. And she did not leave because of the pandemic. She she was planning on leaving uh, even before that. And then she stuck around longer to sort of get us through, you know, the the crisis of the pandemic. Um, but I, you know, I really attribute just the resilience of the field and and of the organization uh, and the preparedness to just to use the word again, to pivot and take stuff online and uh you know, and thankfully NAI was able to get through it. Uh, and then, you know, our, uh, more recently, we uh, we got uh, two PPP loans uh, in consecutive years, and that that really helped us quite a bit. And both of those loans were forgiven. Lisa came to the board way back in '98 and got approval to start the certification program. And as a volunteer, did a wonderful job of getting the right people together in a room and and hammering out the details and. She never takes a lot of credit for that, but deserves a lot more. Uh, There were a number of us that were involved in the decision-making and figuring it out, but without her leadership, it wouldn't have happened. And then uh, I had the weird experience of doing some training with Sarah Blodgett up in uh, Seattle, Washington, and a guy named Dominic Canale sat in on it. At that time, he was the general manager for Denali Aramark. And we were doing training with a group that does boat trips up the in, inner passage. Inside and, passage. Inside passage. I'll get one of those passages right. <laughs> uh, and Dominic came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I've got 90 some bus drivers who are driver guides and they know more about driving they do, than they do about guiding. We really need basic training. Mm-hmm. And that, that led to us talking about the Certified Interpretive Guide course. When the pandemic came along, you folks immediately said, "Do what with the uh, guide and host training?" That was that was precisely it, right? Like, was uh, you know, there was a lot of work that went into um, to taking that that program online. I wasn't really directly involved in taking that that program online, right? And then, uh, you know, by by the time I started with NAI, you know. Uh, the the certification program was was up and running, uh, and obviously has since become you know one of the one of the three pillars of of NAI's operations. Um, but you know that was that was one of the things that our our um, 
certification and training program manager Emily Jacobs was faced with was like, okay, we've got this whole program and there's been sort of these these discussions about taking the program online. Uh, but you know, they were they were more sort of ephemeral discussions, right? And like it was sort of like, okay, someday we might have to do this. And then to be forced into that, you know, just like I said, shows shows the the ability of the people who were, who were sort of on the ground in in that moment. And so, and then I'm aware that, uh, you know, you and Lisa have both done uh, some of these virtual courses yourselves, right? And it's, uh, and, and you're continuing to do that. So uh, the interesting thing, the, the ramifications of, of the, uh, of the pandemic are that there is no return to normal, right? Like, I mean, we, we've been forever changed and the things that we adopted you know, we're not going to just have an online conference every single year, but there's going to be an online component of the conference every year. And if you go to our website now and you look at the certification courses that are being offered, the CIG courses, Certified Interpretive Guide courses, you know, half of them are virtual and half of them are in person. And, you know, so it's, uh, you know, I don't think we ever could have envisioned that necessarily the ability of of the people on the ground to 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 pivot. I'm going to keep using the word pivot, Tim, and you can tell me when I've run out on oh, no, my, uh, my, my pivot limit. I've taught for six years at uh, Hawaii Community College. And of course, when the pandemic hit, they did the same thing to us. Mm -hmm. They suddenly mm -hmm. made all of the teachers take Zoom training, learn how to use mm -hmm. a, a program called Lalima that allowed us to pass documents back and forth and give quizzes and all of that sort of thing. And so when the CIG went virtual, I was kind of excited by it. And uh, I can tell you, we've had one person from Moscow, Russia. We've had two from Verona, Italy. We've had uh, several from the United Kingdom, many from Canada, and uh, one from Philippines who was getting up at two in the morning, <laughs> sitting there from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Kara, you are a trooper, if you happen to hear this. Um and it's been delightful to get to know people. We had a young lady who was working with muskoxen in Alaska. And so she did her 10 minute thematic interpretive talk live out in the snow with the muskoxen. <laughs> she had this is so cool. I love this so much. This is great. You know, I still like doing an in-person class because sure. I like meeting the people. But because yeah. uh, we're in a remote part of Hawaii where we primarily look at turkeys and wild chickens and wild pigs and talk to our coffee. Uh, That's what everyone thinks of when they think Hawaii. They think turkeys and pigs. And, well, I guess coffee. <laughs> well, maybe beaches as well. They're kind of nice. Okay. <laughs> but uh, our little farm is a coffee farm. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just great to sit here in our kitchen and talk to you. One of the ladies from Verona, Italy, who has her own tour company, mm -hmm. wants to be one of the Talk Story podcast uh, participants. So we're going to do that in a couple days. See, that's and, great. And you yeah. mentioned Moscow, Russia. I understand you have someone from Moscow, Idaho also coming. I do a fellow named Sam Ham, who I know that guy, virtually everybody in the interpretive field should know because <laughs> his T-O-R-E tour process that we also taught and still teach in the uh, certified interpretive guide course as a part of poetry, a little longer acronym. Um, has been very important to the field. And Sam's research has been uh, vital in the field. So I'm going to get to catch up with him because it's been, it was Sweden, whatever year Sweden was, 2013? Uh, 13 or 14. Yeah, one of those yeah, two. So that was the last yeah. time I, he and I chatted live. So we're both kind of excited about getting together in this format. And uh, Well, when uh, you talk to him, and I and I talk to him pretty regularly. He and I texted throughout the World Series because he's a he's a big baseball fan. And and most of my relationship with Sam Ham is based on uh, is based on baseball. And uh, and when when Ranger Amy and I Burnett, uh, sorry, when when Ranger Amy Burnett and I went on a uh, Pacific Northwest trip this uh, this past summer, we we stopped in Seattle and saw a Seattle Mariners game because Sam is a big Seattle Mariners fan. So we went saw a baseball game. Well, and I think you uh, you actually have one of the more famous baseball museums in your home. I have what uh, everyone knows as the Sunday Helmet Hall of Fame in my basement in Fort Collins, Colorado. 
And uh, yeah, I've got about 430 little ice cream helmets that you get from minor league and major league baseball games. And uh, every single one of them is unique. Some of them are from the same team, but they are they are unique in their design. And they represent probably several million calories worth of ice cream that I have consumed at baseball games over the year. You know, I was just trying to figure out how many calories that would be. <laughs> it's <laughs> you, a lot of all, calories. Like me, you're also a runner. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I turned into a runner at age 30, largely because I was aware I had put on weight and I was uh, eating too much and I needed to find some moderation and food and all of that learned through the years it was more about mental health that it really rebalances mm -hmm. my brain and makes me feel good about whatever I'm doing so you yeah. do, you run as well I still run I uh in fact just uh yesterday uh ran my buddy Chris and I run we meet at at 5:45 in the uh in the morning to uh run on Monday Wednesday and Friday uh weather permitting and we're getting you know as we get a little older we're getting a little bit more uh picky about what that means next week it's going to be minus 11 degrees here in fort collins and so we may skip that the, the run that day uh but we're running you know we're running you know roughly six miles a day about four days a week um i'm not quite where i was back in uh 2017 2018 I ran four full marathons in two years. You know, they were they were all miserable. Like it's a terrible experience running a full marathon. So I don't need to do that anymore. I'm gonna probably uh, stick with the with the with the half marathons uh, as my longest distance. But yeah, the the running. Uh, you know, I went through a, a sort of difficult point in my life. Uh, you know, five six years ago, and uh, basically decided I was going to get heavy into drinking or heavy into running, and I chose running, and it worked out. I think that's always a better choice. I, I'm in my 47th year. And uh, as you know, from our previous conversations of being out uh, on the road together, running at times, uh, I pick up litter as I run. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I pick up roughly 18,000 items a year off of our little road out here and recycle the recyclables. And uh, part of that's an excuse to slow down and not uh, run as fast. And, mm -hmm. and part of it is giving back because I'm aware as a young person, I was not so thoughtful in how I treated the environment. So huh. it, it doesn't hurt me a bit to be a steward of the local environment here and keep the pole pole road more beautiful. Well, that's, that's an amazing thing that you're doing, picking up trash while you're running like that and running with a trash bag and, you know, that, that I'm sure gets heavy after a couple of miles. And uh, so, so. Kudos to you for doing that. I I have to say that my uh, I'm not quite so selfless about my running. I'm I'm running just to to keep from having that ice cream turn me into a big tub of goo. There you go. Hey, <laughs> you know one of the things I've been amazed at is you, for all these years, produce uh, Legacy Magazine, and it's always been mm -hmm. beautiful and well designed. And uh, you know, I thought it has a thoughtful balance of articles and photos and. Uh, illustrations and advertising, which helps support mm -hmm. publication, you no longer probably have the time to do all that hands-on stuff, do you? Or do you? So I, I don't. Uh, so one of the sort of exciting, but also difficult challenges in taking on this new role has been handing off some things that I've been doing for a long time. Uh, you know, my my main responsibility when I started with NAI in February of 2002 was a to get legacy back on uh, some kind of schedule because it was it was uh, behind schedule by about six months and then B to lay out the magazine. And so that uh, you know that that issue uh, and I think it was the I want to say it was the January February issue in 2002 was the first one I've I, I laid out and I have laid out every single issue of Legacy magazine uh, all the way up until January February of 2023 which is at the printer right now and so this is you know 21 years worth of legacy six episodes or six issues a, a year you know you, you I was told there would be no math on this podcast so I'm not going to try <laughs> to figure out that number but um it is you know, it, it is something that has been my baby for a long time. And we just 
just, just hired a new uh, visual branding specialist is the mm-hmm. title. And uh, her name is Emily McCowan. Wow. And she is she is a whiz with graphic design, and she's got a real great, uh, a really good uh, uh, visual sensibility, and she's going to really do, I think, uh, great things for NAI's uh, visual brand. And one of her responsibilities, starting with the March April twenty twenty three issue of Legacy Magazine, is to lay out the magazine. And you know, one of the other things that's that's happening is I've been. This is, you know, not every designer slash journalist gets this opportunity, but I've been both the designer and the editor of the magazine for most of my time at NAI. So we've I've already handed off the design of the magazine, and uh, one of the things that will be happening, uh, I hope sooner rather than later, is handing off the editorship of the magazine as well. And so this will be, you know, pretty soon, you know, there are going to be issues of Legacy Magazine coming out that don't you know, require anything of me except for my stamp of approval. And I'm, you know, I'm excited about that, but I'm also, you know, sad about it. I, I, what I have found, I'm interested in, in I, I'm finding that I'm more excited than sad. I'm more, I'm excited to have, you know, someone new come in and put a, put a fresh stamp on, on NAI's visuals uh, after I've been doing it for so long. And I think, I think Emily McCowan's going to do a great job with that. I'm excited for you. I can tell you that when I started in 1995, it was a staff of two. Mm-hmm. Our, our membership was on Rolodex cards. Yeah, We were roughly six months behind all the time in updating yeah. our membership. Uh, <laughs> people could coast without paying their dues for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And we corrected all that. But every time I made a, a new hire and added someone to the staff, I got to hand off something yes. that was tough to keep up with. So Sure, sure. I, I re- I remember when I started at NAI, you were you were putting uh, our certificates from our certification program in envelopes. <laughs> you know, here you are the executive director, mailing out certification envelopes. Very often at seven thirty at night, and yeah. I was so thrilled uh, when <laughs> Lisa came on board and took that. She actually worked out of her home in Texas for several years, and did a great job with it from there. But uh, when things in her life changed quite a bit. She moved up to Fort Collins and uh, it was just amazing to have her and Carrie and Jamie and all the various uh, players in the office who were doing component pieces. And uh, you've grown a lot as an organization. How many members now? We were up at about 7,000. We were almost to 7,500 right before COVID and we're down about a thousand from that right now. So we're, we've been building back up but uh, we're we're approaching sixty five hundred right now, and it is an American organization. But how many, you have members in how many countries? Thirty two foreign countries outside of the United States. Yeah, and and the point is, in many of these nations, they have no professional network. Mm-hmm. They have no where to turn. So mm-hmm. if they speak English, read English, it's great to have them as a part of the conversation. Well, I, well, first of all, there's two things. You're you're starting to see more organizations pop up in other places uh you know as long ago as as 2009 when we were in Greece uh you know the interpret Europe was that 2009 or 2010 2009 was Panama and then 2010 no 2010 was Australia <laughs> uh so anyhow uh, you know around that time interpret Europe was formed at one of our international conferences uh, we have since had uh, Interpat MX, which is a, a Mexican interpretive association, pop up, and so you're starting to see more of these organizations pop up around the world. Uh, NAI is one of the seven partner organizations in a group called the Global Alliance for Heritage Interpretation, which is, you know, interpretation organizations in other countries. You know, all of us as equal partners under this larger umbrella of GAHI, we call it Global Alliance for Heritage Interpretation. So that's been, um, you know, a very important part of, you know, the, the sort of international work that that started with NAI under, you know, your watch back when, uh, you know, we first started doing the international conference and as, as early as 2006. Um, the other thing I was going to say, though, is one of the things that I'm really focusing on for NAI is that I'm interested in seeing us develop uh, original Spanish language materials for Spanish language interpreters in the United States, because that's a huge demographic of people in the United States. 
And so we're going to have, uh, with our new marketing and outreach uh, manager, Yvonne Purchase, who was raised speaking Spanish in Southern California, uh, she is working with some of our other members, uh, like Eliezer Nieves, who you know, uh, to develop uh, Legacy en Español, which is going to be our, uh, once a year, we're going to do uh, an issue of Legacy Magazine in Spanish, uh, or all originals, not a translated version of the English, you know, the English one. We're going to be doing, you know, webinars and other programs, uh, original Spanish language materials uh, to reach out to, uh, you know, Spanish language interpreters in the United States. And so I'm very excited about that initiative for NAI. I think it's a great idea. You and I both know that Sam Ham's first book was in Spanish. He was at mm -hmm. uh, Costa Rica when he wrote that. And uh, he is not only fluent, he's amazing to watch as a trainer in Spanish. I mm -hmm. went mm -hmm. to uh, Nicaragua and uh, El Salvador with him at one point, and we, uh, I got to watch and participate a little. I speak a little Spanish, but I really proved there that I'm not very good at it as a trainer. So I, I won't be doing that again. You, well, you lived in France for a while, right? I did. Uh, before I, before I answer that question, I was going to say, Sam and I got to go to Mexico city together. Uh, we were each speaking at an, at an event uh, at a university there. And uh, it was during the world series in 2017. Oh and so Sam and I hung out in the hotel bar and watched the world series in Spanish in 2017. So that Fantastic. was uh that was a joy. But yeah, I, I spent, I don't know, it, it depends on what you mean by by lived in. I, I spent three straight summers in France, uh, staying with uh, either in a study abroad program with my uh, college, University of Richmond. Um, but I had a, a very good high school friend uh, named Manu Ambert, who was uh, an exchange student at my high school. And I went and I spent several summers uh, in in France learning how to speak French like a French teenager. So that by the time I got to college, I was using a bunch of of goofy French teenage slang in my French literature courses that made all the teachers laugh. Well, j'ai étudié français dans l'école secondaire pour deux ans. Wow, I think you just said there is sauerkraut in the kitchen with Marie who was cooking. Wow, I didn't realize I was that good. <laughs> You're so good. It was super good. <laughs> Truth is, that was a long time ago, and that's about all I remember. That's um, very good. Yeah. You know, I mentioned your museum. You actually have a podcast you ought to plug for those other baseball, I, dare I call you baseball nuts? You can call us baseball nuts. You can call us baseball nerds. This is, uh, so thank you for asking about this. It's called Baseball by Design. And it allows me to combine my love of uh, minor league baseball, baseball in general, graphic design, and interpretation. Uh, and what I mean by that is that the premise of this podcast is that you can tell the story of America by understanding why minor league baseball teams are called what they're called. And in minor league baseball in particular, I think there are so many teams that are are called things that have hyper local significance to you know to the area. So a couple of examples that I like to point out are like the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, who are named for the pig iron that they forge in the steel mills of eastern Pennsylvania. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies uh, are named the Rumble Ponies because Binghamton, New York, is the carousel capital of the world. Uh, you know, you've got some teams. Uh, the Daytona Tortugas are named after you know the the sea turtles that you see in in that part of the country, and so. So it just to me is an is an opportunity to talk about baseball, to talk about the graphic design that goes into these logos because the logos are so much fun, but most importantly the sort of interpretation that goes into uh, you know telling the stories of why these teams are are called what they're called, and it allows me to speak with interpreters. Uh, one of the one of the episodes I did was on a team called the Rocket City Trash Pandas, uh, and they're called the Trash Pandas because. They have um, they have a NASA uh, space center there in Madison, Alabama, and so um, you know they they are are named after the astronauts at the space center. And so I actually had a a NASA astronaut, a literal rocket scientist, come on the podcast and talk about what it would take to get a raccoon in a trash can into outer space. So these are the sort of fun things I get to do with doing a, a podcast about minor league baseball. Well, I can tell you that one of the activities we do with every CIG course is talk to them about what I refer to as the yin and yang of 
life. And that is, it's great to be dedicated to your profession and work 60 hours a week and enjoy every hour of it. You've got to find something that balances that. And uh, you clearly have running and baseball and your kids and uh, a lot of good things going on. I, uh, I urge you to stay there because the job can begin to demand more time than you have in a week. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's always been important to me. And, and one of the things I've always enjoyed about working for NAI is that it affords you that opportunity. My, my whole time with NAI, the, the organization has recognized that people have lives outside of, of the organization. And, you know, this is, this is a hobby that I do in my personal time, usually on the weekends. Um, many of the, you know, the interviews I do for the podcast either happen at seven in the morning before I go into work, or they happen right now, like we're talking right now, uh, at eight o'clock at night here in Colorado. And, you know, so, so my, you know, it's a hobby that I get to to do during my evenings and my weekends. And it, uh, it, it makes me very happy and it energizes me just like, I hope this podcast is going to energize you and make you happy because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's your passion and it's something that you believe in and that you love talking about, and it'll keep you connected with people in this field and talking about this thing that matters a lot to you. And that's, that's what my baseball by design podcast does for me. Yeah. I think that's really important. And I will tell you, uh, although I miss Colorado occasionally, mm -hmm. it, it's the temperature tonight is going to get down to very cold temperature <laughs> of 62, maybe yeah. even 61. I did mention, <laughs> I did mention minus 11, right? I did say that for next oh, week for minus us. Minus <laughs> 11. That's no, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> If I recall, when Lisa moved to Fort Collins from Texas, she just never did adjust to the cold weather. She's uh, uh, that just that just never happened for her. And so now you're in Hawaii. So far, I've not heard her say, "Let's go back." So I, I think <laughs> I think we both decided uh, we don't want to shovel any more snow. Well, um, I'm a little nervous about that because I have someone important in my life about to move here from Phoenix, Arizona. So uh, we'll see if she can adjust to that temperature. Well, congratulations on that as well. And uh, in 1974, I attended my first professional conference with Association of Interpretive Naturalists. Mm -hmm. I later would become president of that and would go to the first World Heritage Congress in Alberta and would share a room with Alan Kaplan from California, who was the president of Western Interpreters. And mm -hmm. that was the beginning of a three-year discussion to create NAI. And uh, looking back, I'm just delighted we were able to make things work because we now have six to 7,000 colleagues who affiliate with NAI. And we have a bunch in Europe and other countries that think of NAI as one of the things that help them get going. So I think it's a great thing. Well, it's, it's hard to imagine a world without NAI right now. I mean, obviously not just for me, personally, because it's been my career for, you know, roughly half of my life, uh, but just because of all the good that's happening out there in the world because of this organization. Well, it's a great place for people doing it to go recharge their battery and network with friends. So that's a value I'll never get over. It's a, there's, you can never get enough of that. That is, it, that is a, a hundred percent true. A, a lot happened and the organization really saw a lot of of huge growth over that time. And, and I, you know, I, I go to work in a building every day that, uh, that exists because of, you know, the, the, the vision that, that you all had in creating this, this headquarters for an AI. And so I, you know, I think there's probably a lot that we haven't asked and we haven't talked about. And I think what that means is just, I've got to come on to another episode, uh, you know, after this is firmly established, you know, I'll come on to episode 58 and we can talk about, uh, you know, the, the international conference or legacy magazine, some more, uh, you know, well, thanks for showing up to be episode number one or two or three. I, I'm still sorting uh, these first few, but um, it's been great to have you as a friend and a coach and getting into the podcast business. So I wish you well with your baseball podcast, with your new role as executive director. And I look forward to seeing you the next time somewhere, either here or in real life. <laughs> well, it was certainly great to see your your face again after all those years working in the same building with you. And uh, it, it looks like you're doing great. And I could hear Lisa's voice back there behind you a couple of times. And so uh, 
I, I'm sure that you're enjoying Hawaii right now. And, uh, you know, we, we hope, hopeful, hope we'll get to go out for a beer at Cooper Smith someday. If you guys come back to, to Fort Collins to, you know, to visit we always but during love, the summer, we always love to visit in warm weather. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Paul, take care. Good to, good to chat again. Great to see you, Tim. Wonderful to talk story with you. Thanks for joining Paul and I today. And next week I have a fascinating guest, Valeria Biasi, very talented guide and tour company owner in Verona, Italy. She recently earned the Certified Interpretive Guide credential via Zoom with me and Lisa Brochu, my wife and training partner at Heartfelt Associates. We'll learn about her interesting journey into guiding and interpretation in Northeast Italy. Our next virtual CIG course is May 1st to 11th, and you can learn more about it at interpnet.com on NAI's certification calendar. Also, Lisa will teach a virtual interpretive planning course from May 22nd to 25th, followed by a four-hour contract management course on May 26th via Zoom. The details and registration form are at heartfeltassociates.com slash training. And you can take this course from your living room or kitchen at home. I owe a debt of gratitude to Mark Stoffel, Amanda Linus, for permission to use his Frost on a Pretzel from his Coffee and Cake album. As a lifelong so-so mandolin picker myself, I admire his amazing artistry. If you have an interest in being on Reflections on Interpretation, just contact me at timfmerriman at gmail.com and I'll get back to you. Have a wonderful day. Aloha. Aloha.